Well, you have gathered this evening for a rather intriguing subject, and one which, 50 years ago, no one has really appeared about. You had to live 500 years ago or today to be able to examine this particular theme because it is a highly controversial and comparatively incredible subject. The corpus of Paracelsus, or the great body of his work, is made up of many different sections. Some of them are dealing with phases of medicine or alchemy, and others with peculiar doctrines which he accumulated in these wanderings which we described last week. We know that there was no man in the history of learning who had so broad a sympathy for unfavored beliefs. He went out and he talked with people. He visited small villages and communities, went out into deserted areas where hermits and recluses dwelt. And here he learned the lore of his world, the fables, the legends, the stories. And perhaps he was nearly 500 years before his time, because it dawned on him, even as early as the 15th, or rather the 16th century, that all these beliefs of man had to have some valid origin. They meant something. We're beginning to come back to this in analytical psychology. We no longer regard ancient symbols as mere inventions, fabrications, or delusions. We know that they tie into some phase of human consciousness. He knew this intuitively, although he had no scientific background upon which to support his theory. He learned, among other things, for example, that all over the world, people of every race, every class, every degree of intelligence, have long honored and affirmed the reality of beings other than those with which we are commonly acquainted. The Persian has his theory. The Mongol is Zen. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Hindus have their mysterious, familiar spirits. The Greeks had their nymphs and dryades. The ancient Druids had their gnomes. The German legends of the Nibelungen people. All of these stories intrigued Paracelsus. He said they must mean something. The whole world, for thousands of years, could not have accepted these stories had they been pure fabrications. And we remember, of course, in one of the Socratic dialogues, where Socrates, having chosen a pleasant place beside a grove of trees in the country, uh, declared that it would be a fine occasion for a discourse. 
because the familiar spirits would be there to guide and lead him. Now, he was not exactly a fool. He believed definitely in a daemon or spirit that directed his own life. We also know that the Egyptians, particularly Iamblichus and his mysteries of the Chaldeans and Egyptians, describe familiar spirits. And in this work, we have the first statement, perhaps, the concept of the guardian angel. The guardian angel returns to us in Christian theology. And even up to the present time, our belief in this guardian angel is not a doctrine of the church. It is considered as of the mind of the church. Therefore, it may be believed without interfering with orthodoxy. That such beings have long been held to exist, have always been accepted, became of sufficient interest to Paracelsus, he began to examine it as a theory to find out if possible the philosophical reasoning behind it and the theological and scientific justifications for such belief. His findings in his own time were naturally rejected. They've been rejected for centuries since. In the last 25 years, our world has changed, and many things long rejected are now considered with some thought, and many things generally accepted are now being questioned. So with this preamble, we will try to set the stage for the Paracelsian concept, and bear in mind that it is susceptible of more than one interpretation. We probably cannot exhaust the interpretations in the time that we have, but perhaps they will suggest further thinking of your own. You know, as we've said before, that Paracelsus was essentially a devout man, that he believed strongly in religion and had actually memorized the Bible so that he could quote any part of it upon request. Though he was not a stranger to the scriptures, nor to the miracles and mysterious occurrences which they describe and examine also. And he came to this conclusion, and this is one of the premises from the Archidoxus, which is the beginning of his study of this subject. He said, I affirm or believe that there are two kinds of substances in nature, two kinds of bodies, and as he expresses it rather quaintly, there is a flesh from Adam. And there is also a flesh that is not from Adam. Now he explains as he goes on that by flesh from Adam, as he recalls considerably upon early Kabbalistic speculation, there is a kind of flesh that men know which is composed of a mingling of the four basic elements that were known to the ancients. Now, we must bear in mind that the elemental theory, as we have it today, the theory of elements, uh, does not quite coincide with the older concept. So when we use elements today to think of nitrogen and uh, uh, uranium and helium and all these things, we are not thinking in the terms of his day. The ancients recognized essentially four elements. These four elements are the familiar ones that we all refer to. Earth, water, fire, and air. 
Now, according to Paracelsus, flesh or bodies coming from Adam or descending in the human way are all composed of compounds of these four elements. Therefore, in the human body there is a physical or mineral part, a vegetable or, we might say, humid part. There is a fiery principle of heat, warmth, which we recognize in the body, and there is an airy or gaseous principle. The human body, then, is made up of solids, liquids, gases, and a fiery principle. These were the elements known to the ancients. This does not mean that they did not recognize gold and silver and iron and all these things, but they gave them a different classification. Elements to them were always these four, and they returned to us in many forms of symbolism. Uh, the four rivers that flow out of the Garden of Eden, for example, uh, were said originally to represent the streams of energy flowing through the primordial elements. These elements were represented gradually by the symbols of the six signs of the zodiac. Taurus the bull representing earth, Leo the lion representing fire, Scorpio the scorpion representing water, and Aquarius or the water bearer, whose water, however, is an electrical fluid was the ancient symbol of air. These elements then later became associated with the corners of the world and even with the four apostles or evangelists of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like the Lion of St. Mark, the Eagle of St. John, and so on. All bodies, according to these ancient beliefs, were composed of four elements in a compound. By means of this compound, man, descending from Adam, lived in four elementary spheres at the same time. He had dominion over these elements and was able to control, integrate, and order them because he possessed a fifth element within himself. This fifth element has descended to us in a term that we occasionally use as a symbol of something exceptionally valuable or exceptionally pure. We call it quintessence, or the fifth essence. Now, the quintessentia of alchemy was a fifth principle called by Paracelsus Azoth. And it was a kind of pure vitality by means of which all elements were held together this vitality, this quintessence, was that which bound or united elements, forming what were called binders. And this quintessence was the vehicle in man of a principle, a fifth power, which both the Pythagoreans and later the Paracelsians called the soul. Therefore, the quintessence was the symbol of the soul, which was a kind of fifth element superior to the others, permeating the others, governing the others, and holding them in the compound which we call body. So Paracelsus says that man coming from Adam as a body composed of these elements 
to which is added as a controlling and directing power the quintessence of the soul. Our Paracelsus goes on to point out that we know these elements only through their phenomenal manifestations in our objective world. We know that Earth extends beneath our feet, and that whenever we touch any solid object, we are touching some form of physical matter. That from Earth grows bodies, the most corporeal parts of these bodies being themselves of the Earth earthy, like the trunk of a tree or the bones and flesh of an animal. These things belong to the physical element. They are derived from it, and ultimately they will return to it again. And from these physical factors, a part of man's nature is derived. A second level contributing to him is liquid. And in the case of the human body, we know that it is mostly liquid. Therefore, that the so-called fluidic or to symbolist water element is extremely important to man. He can live much longer without food than he can without water. And without proper amount of fluid in his system, he rapidly loses his life. So water is essential to his survival. Yet this water which preserves him can also drown him if he should fall into an ocean or a lake. So water is essential, but it is also extremely dangerous. The third thing which he must possess in order to be alive is the principle of heat. And the Paracelsians established the existence of this heat radiating area in the liver. And they held that heat uh, made possible the circulation and distribution of the energies of the body and helps to maintain and regulate it. And that nearly all the channels and instruments of the body have to do with the distribution of heat. And that heat to man is essential to life. Without heat he can also die. With too much heat he can be consumed. So fire is again a benevolent but dangerous element. The final element is air. A man is dependent upon it even more than he realizes. He knows that it is necessary to respiration, but he does not recognize how complete his indebtedness is until perhaps he uh, travels in too rarefied an altitude or something of that nature. When he discovers furthermore that the pressure of air upon him is important to the organization and maintenance of his body. So air becomes a very important thing. And these four together are elements recognized by the ancients. Paracelsus said, that is true, but man, forever the utilitarian, forever thinking of everything only in terms of a, vi a visible and apparent circumstances, has never given proper thought or consideration to these substances uh, which are within him and around him, which form a natural environment and atmosphere and in which he lives. First of all, he must realize that these elements are not simply things heaped together, aggregates of confusion. Each of these elements has its boundaries. It has its laws and its rules. It has its 
particular channels of expression, and each sustains or supports because of the presence within it of an energy factor, so that these elements are indeed rivers of life, and that when they are cut off from man, man perishes. And yet each of these elements has within it energies so peculiar to itself that man, in order to maintain his physical economy, must maintain the balance of these elements in his body at all times. And any serious imbalance of these elemental polarities will result in sickness or perhaps ultimately the dissolution of the body itself. Now, Paracelsus points out that these elements can conceivably be much more than they seem to be. Fire, for example, we as we know it, is a spontaneous thing, arising here, disappearing there, blazing forth from the volcano or the match that has just been struck. Fire disappears again, yet the principle of fire remains and may be re-engendered whenever the circumstances appropriate to its appearance are reanimated. According to Paracelsus, therefore, these elements, in more than being simply uh, elements in the constitution of man, are in actuality worlds. The element of air, of which we can not see any tangible part, but which we can sense mostly through the sense of feeling, or the element of water or fire or earth, these elements are not only something we use, something that appears in this world, these elements are complete existences in themselves. The element of water, for example, is not merely one kind of water. It is essentially a principle, a fluidic medium. And water, as we see it, is only a very small part of its manifestation. The rest of its substance is invisible to us. The same is true even of earth. Only certain forms of earth can we see. Only certain forms of fire can we see. Only certain kinds of air can we recognize or respond to with any of the perceptions or sensitivities that we possess. So Paracelsus tells us that what we call the spheres of the four elements are complete worlds in themselves. That these worlds have laws, rules, regulations, that the energies moving in them are susceptible of scientific analysis, but that this analysis is extremely difficult because we are able to know only the consequences of certain manifestations. He uses again the correspondence to man himself. Man functioning through a body composed of four elements <coughs> is visible to us. We can touch him, we can listen to him speak, we can uh, make a photographic reproduction of his appearance. But what do we know about him? What do any of these things actually tell us? Man is actually a being, unknown, and as far as we are able objectively to consider him, 
comparatively unknowable. We recognize only certain of his manifestations. We can estimate only those parts of him which are within the sensory gamut which we possess. Now, according to Paracelsus, the same is true of the elements. We have certain knowledge of the elements in their relation to our corporeal existences, but of the elements themselves, their substances and their laws, we know nothing, because all elements, including earth, all elements are essentially invisible, and the visible parts of them are merely extensions into the compounds which we call forms. Thus, air has a total existence apart from the air that we breathe. Fire, water, earth have total existences. And the reason we do not appreciate these or understand them better is because they are beyond our dimensional acceptance. So Paracelsus brings up the problem of dimension. He says we live in a world of three dimensions. What we do not realize is that we live in a world of infinite dimensions, but that man as a creature is bound by three. Therefore his experience is within these three, and when his activity reaches the circumference of these dimensions, it turns back upon him again. He cannot immediately break through into any other dimension. Thus he lives a comparatively limited creature, living in three dimensions and surrounded by perhaps countless dimensions. Now a dimension is more than an area. A dimension is a kind of differentiation. A dimension implies within itself extent and expanse. Greater dimensions will not be lesser than those that we know. Therefore, the world around us unfolds into dimensions. And of these dimensions, the elements give us some understanding. Because these elements expand into dimensions beyond us. And because they so expand, and we are unable to follow them, we regard ourselves as surrounded by space. Space is actually the reservoir of dimensions, and within it are inconceivable differentiations in terms of time, place, number, form, and these essential principles. There are forms that are not three-dimensional, or two-dimensional, or one-dimensional as we know dimensions. There are energies which cannot be captured within the dimensional pattern of our consciousness or experience. We begin to realize this, for we know that at this moment this room is filled with energy. And some of these man-directed as television or radio, and that these waves are moving around us and perhaps through us constantly, yet we are unaware of them. Yet as they move through us, they are not merely motion. They are not merely a diffusion of vitality. They are patterned, ordered, having integration on a level beyond our comprehension. 
Therefore, they may travel vast distances and be reinterpreted into sound or picture if the appropriate mechanism is available. Paracelsus, therefore, postulates another point. He says, man potentially possesses the mechanism necessary for a further extension of his own consciousness into a polydimensional universe that the, these things must happen in the course of time, and that when they do happen, man is going to be gravely surprised. He is going to realize that the space around him, the interval factors which he recognizes, have no existence except in terms of his own sensory limitations, and that what he calls emptiness is merely a fullness beyond his comprehension that nowhere in the universe is there actually a vacuum. And that the nearest thing to a vacuum, according to Paracelsus, is the head of a sophisticated human being, who having uh, locked his mind against the free distribution of energy, uh, soon enters a state of comparative vacuity. The next point, then, in connection with our problem, is to follow the Paracelsian concept, for that is what we are dedicated to doing this evening, into these worlds, worlds of elemental substances, worlds that, according to him, human beings have occasionally been able to contact. Paracelsus was convinced and he expresses it in his own terms, that man, at least certain human beings, on occasion, are able to break through some of these dimension binders with which we are so familiar. Usually, such occurrences happen in sleep or in a so-called dream state, a state in which Objective faculties are temporarily suspended. Paracelsus joins most philosophers in recognizing that our comparative ignorance of the subjective is due to our hypnotic addiction to the objective. But because we have directed and trained our faculties only in one direction, that they are not available for the full area which they might be able to cover that they receive adequate instruction. He also points out that certain experiences, difficult to understand and, in, and interpret, are not so rare with children, that the small child seemingly retains a certain capacity to penetrate dimensions as we know them. He also observes that this same proclivity is marked in primitive people, that you are a very primitive human being who lives very close to life and to nature and who has been comparatively unconditioned by the sophistications of intellectualism, that these kind of persons also have a rapport to nature around them. These are the ones who nearly always insist and affirm the reality of the submundane beings or the creatures existing within the elements. 
Santosus tells us that if we could conceive, for example, of water as a vast world of humidity, a world extending like our physical earth and expanding beyond it into the atmosphere outside, a vast world of fluid motion, a world in which the humid principle is the solitary element. Paracelsus makes a very great point of the fact that the elements represent fields in which are unfolding forms of life that are not composite. But the difference between elementary beings and human beings lies in the fact that the elementary being is not composed of a compound of four elements, nor even of two, but is a creature subsisting and existing only in its own elements, having no nature, no integration, no compound or composite nature outside of this single element. Thus, so to say, in this humid element, which we call visibly water, and which perhaps the Greeks best liken to humidity, there would be a great world of humid life. This world would have its own flora and fauna. It would not be merely a diffusion in the atmosphere. This world could have in it a kind of equivalent to everything that we have, with the exception that everything there is composed of this one elemental substance. Thus there could be rocks, but they would be composed of humidity. There could be plants growing, but the plant, its body, and its substance are all of the same thing. There could be animals, animals composed of the humid principle alone. And there could also be creatures resembling human beings, but composed of one substance only, and not composed of a compound as man is. Paracelsus declared that from the learned doctors of Constantinople and other places, that he had gained much knowledge concerning these kinds of beings, and that the primary purpose of them, for everything in nature must have a purpose, is that elements serve two functions. First of all, uh, they are spheres or planes or fields of growth. And a great world, whether it be a world of fire or the visible world of man, a great diffusion of environmental dimensions cannot remain uninhabited. But it is inconceivable that any abode suitable to life should not have life but that the nature of these elements is such that this life is of one element and one element only. Therefore, Paracelsus says, referring to elemental beings, that they differ from every other type of creature that man can know. Everything visible to him. They differ from animals because in many respects they are superior to animals. They differ from man in one primary respect. 
namely that they have no soul, because they are not ensouled creatures. Man is a being composed of spirit, soul, and body. Elementaries, according to Paracelsus, consist of only one body, one substance. Their soul, their body, their life, all these elements are undifferentiated, are one substance. This means that a creature so constituted and possessing, as the elemental does, according to Paracelsus, intellect, that such creatures, as he expresses it, are amoral. That is, they have no moral sense. They are neither good nor bad. In this they resemble animals. They do not worship, nor do they fear. They do not fear death, nor do they hope immortality. They have an existence without conflict. And because there is no relationship between elements in their constitution, there is no wear or tear as we know it. There is no rapid exhaustion of energy as there is with man. Therefore, these elementary beings exist for a very long time in comparison to man, and when the time of their existence ends, they dissolve again into the substances from which they came. Because all elements are essentially material, though not physical, these beings are essentially material, but not physical, as we see it. Therefore, they are subject to laws of generation. They are subject to practically every pattern that we know. And they represent a gradual evolution within elemental fields. And Paracelsus opines that perhaps it is in this way and in this kind of greenhouse of the gods that the first sproutings begin which ultimately result in compound beings, and therefore that the elements are gradually individualizing, and that sometime out of these elements will be created beings that have compound existence, but that in this period they do not so uh, exist. Consultus, following the ancient concept, from Greece, Egypt, India, China, many other areas, divides, therefore, these elemental beings into four groups, of which he considers the earth spirits, or the gnomes, to be those most closely associated with matter. The water spirits he calls undines, or nymphs. The fire spirits he calls salamanders. And the air spirits he calls silks. These are more or less the traditional names. You'll find them in the Irish folklore. And it is a poor Irishman indeed who has lived his whole life close to the clod, who has not at least had one personal experience with a leprechaun. Such a thing would be inconceivable. I remember one fiery bearded Irishman whom I knew years ago who was able to tell you the whole history of Ireland long before human beings were invented because he knew Ireland's history back in the time when only the little people inhabited the land and were finally driven into the bogs and fens by the coming of that cruel and degenerate group of individuals we call humans. But this old gentleman not only knew all the lore, but when you flatly said to him, but have you ever seen them? He gives you a look of pained indignation. Of course he has. They're his old friends. Every good Irishman has seen them. 
Well, we can say maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But certainly the law was there, and it always been there. The law which Paracelsus declared had to mean something, and he was determined to find out if possible what it did mean. So we have four kinds of elemental beings living within their own world. And Paracelsus went so far as to point out that under various rules and circumstances, the elementals not only fulfill the universal pattern of law as evolving life still in a, an undifferentiated state, but that they become and are the natural administrators of the elemental procedures. Therefore, that all of the mysterious activities which we associate with the elements are due to these guiding powers within them. What he is trying to tell us essentially is that each element is governed by an intellective core, and that it is perfectly possible for air and water and earth and fire to fulfill certain rational activities. Perhaps not because the element in itself is rational, but because it is administered by rational beings within itself. Therefore, that the various processes in nature, particularly those processes which we call natural, the natural processes we see around us, some apparently obvious, some extremely mysterious, are due to these elemental beings, that they are the ones who are constantly guarding and directing the motion of elements in even the material compounds and patterns which we see. He held furthermore that these beings and others for he goes much further in his studies of this. And others, some composite, some simple creatures like the elementals, constitute the population of an invisible world, moving in upon man. And Paracelsus was convinced that someday this invisible world would move in closer, and that man would discover that it would not be necessary for him to find other planets in order to discover other beings, that he would discover them here, and that these other beings uh, would come to our awareness in various ways, one of the ways being, of course, the thing we least recognize, namely our own growth. Man, regardless of the limitations and restrictions which he imposes upon the development of his own structure, is evolving. He is constantly becoming a more sensitive creature. He is releasing bands of extrasensory perception, slowly but inevitably. As these bands increase, he will not be of the opinion that he has done anything. He will be of the opinion that the other phase of life is moving in upon him. He will not realize that it was always there. He will discover it. And when he discovers it, it will be new. And he may affirm that it is the result of this other life pressing toward him. Actually, it is the gradual unfoldment of his own sensitivity 
justice, for example, we can say that a law, such as the law of gravity, uh, if we are still willing to accept it, if it is true, it was always there, whether man discovered it or not. If this other world around man is real, it is always here, whether we know it or not. When we become aware of it, we consider it something new and remarkable, but the newness is only in ourselves, because we have discovered it. Now we pause for a moment now and uh, take up another phase of the Paracelsian psychology relating to these things, and then gradually we'll try to draw some of the points together. But he also differentiated an entirely different group of beings from elementals. And uh, for his purposes, specifically, he referred to these other beings as elementary. Now, elementaries and elementals are usually considered synonymous terms, and we've even used them that way ourselves. But for the specific study of the Paracelsian concept, we must at this time pause and distinguish. An elemental is a creature such as we have described, one of the four orders of nature spirits, or the type of being which we find among the religious beliefs of the Navajo and Hopi Indians with their catchiness, and uh, with all the little people of the Irish and all these things. The elementary, according to Paracelsus, is an artificial creature created in the invisible world by man himself. Now this presents us with a new psychological problem. According to Paracelsus, the most common form of the elementary is the incubus. Now an incubus is a kind of demon. It is a demon which originates not in any demoniacal or infernal principle in nature. An incubus is an expression of a phase of man's divinity. Because, it says Paracelsus, when God created Adam, he bestowed upon Adam not only a body, but breathed into him the life of God himself. And this life includes the power to create. Therefore, man is a creator. He is a creator not only in terms of body, in the perpetuation of species, he is a creator, as we know, in terms of imagination, where he creates art. He is a creator in levels of science, in levels of philosophy. He is a creator of architecture. Man is forever a creator, finding expression through creative activity. But his creative powers are not only external, but also internal. And Paracelsus pointed out that within man is a continual power, a lodestone, from which things can be and are perpetually being born. And that having been born, these things have a strange kind of life derived from man playing God. And that wherever the human being exercises any impulse or any instinct, he sets vibration in action. And vibration means the creation or engendering of life. 
Man is therefore, whether he realizes it or not, capable of creating beings. Not only by intent, but without intent. And that man, out of his emotions and his thoughts, is also uh, perpetuating a kind of progeny. And that thought form, or emotion form, emanating from the human being, are living things. Having a life derived from man, having a dependency upon man, and uh, surviving only in the degree or to the term that man makes this survival possible. An example uh, derived from the Paracelsian thinking uh, may clarify this a little more. For instance, the human being has the power of speech. Uh, the ancients fully realized that the human power to create sound was closely associated with the mystery of the creative fiat, or the word. In the beginning was the word. Man is continually creating <coughs> words. And the human lyrics is actually the womb of sound. And just as surely as man may bear flesh of his flesh from his body, so he may bear life from his Every word that man creates and speaks is a rate of vibration. And we have not yet learned how any rate of vibration dies. This rate of vibration, this word that is spoken, goes out and like the rippling caused by a rock falling in a still pool, these ripples go on and on and on until they disappear from our awareness. But we have no proof that any energy is actually destructible. Thus sound is a kind of life. Uh, in the Orient, uh, certain uh, addicts to hashish and other drugs have reported the ability to see words coming out of the human mouth and that these words appear as luminous forms or patterns. Paracelsus would say that's undoubtedly quite probable, because man is forever creating. And in the invisible world around him, he is creating constantly through thought and emotion activity. Thoughts are things, as an ancient adage. And here Paracelsus would also agree that thoughts gradually create entities. That these entities, supplied and sustained by the flowing motion of thought, strengthen, become more and more uh, densified, not visible to our sight, but capable of exercising an ever greater influence upon our objective life through the subjective. Just as man's energies move from the invisible into visible and corporeal functions, so these thought and emotion entities, or elementary, 
move into manifestation through the functions and processes of the body. Paracelsus gathering ancient lore gives us a certain amount of information, for instance, on the idea of the incubus. And uh, it is rather uh, interesting from a psychological standpoint because it may explain something that psychologists are not yet able to fully understand. We know that the human psyche becomes ridden with pressure centers, which we call fixations, complexes, phobias, and the like. We know that the continual repetition of ideas, the maintenance of a certain attitude, particularly a destructive one, and your incubus is a destructive elementary, that this continual process gradually causes a fixation to intensify, to, so to say, crystallize, to have ever clearer and more distinct boundaries, and to become ever more avaricious in itself in relation to its effect upon the person who is dominated by it. Paracelsus suggests the analogy between uh, the incubus and the parasite on a plant. Just as a beautiful orchid lives partly at least upon the tree and partly upon the air, and as the mistletoe and other of these uh, parasitic plants and uh, other parasites in nature live by taking the life of the tree or plant to which they are attached. So your incubus becomes a man-made parasite, gradually taking the life and vitality of the person, living upon it until it destroys it. We can, we can see something in this philosophy which probably Paracelsus could never have seen. He observes today the tremendous increase in mental pathology. We observe how attitudes becoming more and more fixed become what science terms obsessional. Paracelsus used the term obsession to signify possession by an entity. Today, psychologically, we use obsession to signify possession by an abnormal attitude. Now, where is the fact of this fact? Is the abnormal attitude actually an entity? We don't know. We can't say that it is not. We prefer to assume that it is not. But how can we completely explain uh, the peculiar undermining of the consciousness of a human being who under the pressure of an abnormal attitude of his own gradually is devoured by this attitude which appears to be more and more possessive and when under treatment becomes highly defensive. One interesting point that we have in the problem of psychotherapy is a condition which is susceptible of more than one interpretation. We take that for granted. But it will seem that an abnormal situation under treatment will fight to continue itself. 
In other words, it will resist in every way possible the therapy which is directed against it. And wherever we reach a certain degree in the development of an ailment, the tendency of the patient, that is a mental ailment, is gradually to come to the defense of the ailment instead of the recovery and become finally completely a slave defending abnormalcy as he would never defend normalcy. We therefore see people who are suffering from serious complexes fighting desperately to preserve the complex instead of getting over it, refusing to seek treatment, clinging to it as though it was becoming the most valued possession that they have. Now, is it how, how are we going to explain this? How are we going to explain an area of mental phenomena? How are we going to say that an attitude, which for all we know or what we believe can merely be itself a, a product of mechanistic function, how can we prove that this attitude has boundaries, that it grows, that it is nourished, that it enlarges, increases, and preserves boundaries of its own, slowly emerging as some kind of an essential, invisible structure within the mental field. What this structure may be, we do not know, but that it is some kind of a strange, cellular-like structure we are convinced, because we know that as we approach it, it becomes agitated that when we depart from it, it subsides, that under various aggravations and exaggerations it releases itself powerfully. Under certain other conditions, it does not. We know that it grows. We know that a small bad habit can ultimately become a large bad habit. Why is this is merely space out here into which thought is moving? Is not one thought dissipated, then another, and then another? Why are they accumulative? Unless in some way there is a structural pattern by which this accumulation is reasonable. Why do two thoughts of a kind build together to make a bigger one? There has to be some kind of a mental chemistry operating. And Paracelsus says this mental chemistry is simply due to the fact that these creatures fashioned and maintained by the energy of man become kinds of living beings. That these living beings are vampires. And that what we call the vampire is not the bat coming down the chimney in some ancient legend but man himself creating monstrosities in his own psychic life which vampirize his faculties and interfere therewith. Now, Paracelsus went still further in his thinking, and he went so far as to declare that these vampire things, these uh, incubi that man creates, has the same tendency as nearly all other unformed or unformal creatures, namely to drift into manifestation, to come into expression, to become embodied. 
And he was of the opinion that what we call disease is very largely due uh, to this field of subjective psychic malfunctions, which we would call wrong thinking and wrong emotions. He did not go to the uh, extent of taking the attitude that uh, everything is just the way we think it is. But he did hold the belief that attitudes, mental and emotional, which reach the condition of intensification, that they create a psychic organism, that these psychic organisms then turn back upon man, creating certain physical symptomology, and that many so-called ravaging diseases are actually emotion and thought forms attaching themselves to the body and vampirizing it. He did not, however, take the attitude that these entities uh, were bona fide beings, like demons, or that they were some nasty relative working on us subjectively. He was much more inclined to feel that what we term the black magician is simply the black psychic side of ourselves. That each individual creates this black magician, which is actually and factually a thought emotion entity built out of his own selfishness. And that where a person living apparently a respectable life, but inwardly filled with hate and destructive attitude, that this person is creating another being, and that this other being is becoming his familiar or his spirit, just like uh, Mephisto attached himself to Faust, and that this being created by ourselves is our own uncontrolled, negative, animistic self, and that it will proceed to turn upon us like an outraged spirit and destroy it, unless we previously destroy it. So Paracelsus filled the mental and emotional atmosphere of life with these creatures uh, which man himself fashioned. And in his problem of therapy, therefore, and we'll come down for a moment to Paracelsus again as a scientist. We have uh, touched on him a bit as a philosopher, and no one will question that his doctrine of elementals goes into the rarefied atmospheres of theology. But uh, we'll come down for a moment to the scientific problem. Having created a concept, Paracelsus went to work to try to prove whether or not it was...